I'm Jason Baylor-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Diana Campbell-Bettencourt. She's an American curator based in Mumbai. She's the artistic director of the Samdani Art Foundation in Dhaka and the chief curator of the Dhaka Art Summit. I was really nervous for this interview for two reasons. One being it was the first interview I ever conducted over Skype. It's an incredibly engaging and interesting interview. Two, though, Diana is someone who wears so many hats and is all over the world doing amazing things that I wanted to make sure that I covered every possible angle and took the opportunity and asked questions regarding Dhaka Art Summit and the Samdani Art Foundation as well as artists and the region that she's currently working in, Southeast Asia. It was a pleasure speaking to Diana, and I really thank her for taking the time in her busy schedule to have a conversation. So, here's Diana. All right, Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's funny that we're normally on other ends of the planet, mm-hmm. you being in India and me in LA, and today we're both in LA, but we're doing this remotely still. I know, I know. Well, it's funny that before we started this, I'm actually working on a show um, looking at uh, Mumbai and LA, but as antipodes. So what's really, in- I mean, there's so many things that are interesting about this, but um, to give you an idea, um, a lot of the Hollywood movies, the post-production business is in uh, Mumbai. Right. So basically you have this 24-hour work cycle. Um, and it's really interesting if you start looking at the connections between the two places. So you you were born in L.A. I was. I was born at Cedar sinai So um, How long were you, did you grow up here or where did you grow up? I did. I grew up in Palos Verdes, which is uh, a very sleepy place um, by the beach. But interestingly enough, I've always associated Palos Verdes with being a very kind of conservative place. But both uh, Javier Perez and Doug Aiken went to my high school, but way ahead oh, that's of That's too funny. So, And then also in India, I was um, traveling, visiting a pottery studio um, in Pondicherry in the southeast uh, uh, coast of India. There is um, a man named Ray Meeker who started this um, pottery facility there. Turns out he also went to Palos Verdes. Oh, really? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's some strange thing. What was, the, what was that transition out of California? Where did you go after? Did you go to school here or where did you go to school? Well, so basically um, my parents, since I was five, or I guess that's the first time I had a memory of that, they told all of us, there's three of us, that we would be going to the East Coast for school. But, to yeah. get you out of California? Yeah, which is strange, but now they still live in California and they are, um, you know, hoping that we're all going to come back. But so I think they're, they're rethinking that. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. So I went to Princeton um, and I left, I guess, when I was 18. So I graduated and, and then I went to the East Coast. The East Coast. And out of Princeton, where did you end up directly thereafter? Uh, New York. So that's, um, you know, kind of, but I guess this will be interesting for your uh, listeners. My parents really wanted me to be an investment banker. Oh, really? Um, most, um, as most Princetonians are. So I'm about to go for my 10th college reunion where everyone is basically a banker or a hedge fund manager. Or was a, there somebody in your family that were bankers? or? No, I think that's just kind of, they you know. Just, that was the thing. 
after success, uh, circa 2006. So what was funny, I actually did work at JP Morgan after school in the equity research department. And basically the, the company had to launch stock coverage on Sotheby's, but Sotheby's was such a small cap stock that none of the bankers cared about it. And since I was interested in art and I had studied art history, I was 22 and they told me that I should just take the lead on this. Oh my gosh. It was a bit frightening to think that 22-year-olds are affecting the you know valuations of companies. <laughs> um, so I was having lunch with the CEO and the CFO pretty regularly and I told them that I hated my life and convinced them to hire me. So in a strange way, my entrance into the art world, to be 22 in New York. Through banking. Through banking, because these companies don't pay young people. So basically, they don't want to they don't want to work with anyone who has to work. So I believe at the time, the starting salary was like twenty three thousand dollars a year with, at Sotheby's. With at no Sotheby's. Yeah, it's insane. So um, basically, they couldn't show the bank how little they paid people. So um, oh my I, gosh. I mean, while it was still a huge pay cut. And I don't think I'll ever make as much money as I made at 22. It was, it was in theory, it was the only way for this to work out because to be, even to be an assistant curator in New York, it's so difficult. There's zero money. There's no money. There's no money at all. It's, um, it's, it's very difficult to to make things work that way. You are the artistic director of the Samdani Art Foundation. Mm -hmm. It's in Bangladesh. Yeah, it's in Bangladesh, but we take a position where we don't want this to be a Bangladeshi foundation. Like, you know, this exists in Bangladesh, but it exists because there's a need for the world to see South Asia beyond India. Uh, or the foundation supports research and knowledge and exhibitions that relate to the wider region of South Asia. So I guess that would be Afghanistan in the West and Myanmar to the East, and then I guess Maldives and Sri Lanka to the South. So my knowledge of India and the, the region is very limited. Why is this Bangladesh rather than Mumbai? What's the the reason for it being there? So basically, as you know this, or you might not know, this region has about a 5,000-year-old culture and a lot of shared history. However, when the British divided India in 1947, they cut off these countries from talking to each other. And And India is the biggest superpower. So internationally, when you probably see art from what is considered South Asia, it's probably from India. And the reason that the Samdani started this foundation, um, because they're young collectors as well, and a lot of institutions are looking for money in this part of the world. 2011, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they realized that actually when these museums were saying that they wanted to start a South Asia Acquisitions Committee, they meant an India Acquisitions Committee. And Bangladesh is not India. So they basically realized that in order for people from Bangladesh or Nepal or Sri Lanka or any of these other countries to even have a chance, there needed to be some sort of base where people could come and learn about um, the art and history of those places. And Bangladesh turned out to be the perfect place for this. Yeah, so that's where they're from. So they are Bangladeshi. And what's really interesting, I mean, there's so many interesting things about Bangladesh, but Bangladesh was started in 1971. So in America, people might know about it because it was the first humanitarian concert that ever happened. So it was, the, I think it was George Harrison, the concert for Bangladesh that happened in uh, Madison Square Garden. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. So basically, Bangladesh used to be called East Pakistan. So when the British split up India, they put Bangladesh, they, they made a West Pakistan and an East Pakistan with Bangladesh in the middle. And their logic being that they are both Muslim countries. Religion is not a way to build a nation. No, it's ridiculous. And they speak completely different languages. 
they are like ethnically different. Also, Bangladeshis converted to Islam from Buddhism. So the second largest uh, Buddhist monastery south of the Himalayas is in Bangladesh. So their type of Islam is completely different from the Islam that's, I mean, it's the same religion, but culturally it's different, if that makes sense. They approach it from different avenues. They approach it from different avenues. Culturally, the way that their rituals and things like that are also different. Another thing is that it's much more liberal in Bangladesh. So there's a slide I love to show of one of the masterpieces of Bangladeshi modern art. There are nude women in it. So, you know, this is not something you're going to see in Pakistan. Uh, The other thing that happened was that uh, Pakistan outlawed the local language, which is called Bangla. It's a form of Bengali. They, They outlawed the language and everyone had to speak Urdu. So that basically meant that people weren't getting government jobs unless they spoke the language of West Pakistan. And the people rebelled. And that is, you know, it's a much longer story than that. But the people rebelled and it's one of the first countries that exists out of a desire to speak their own language. So Bangladesh is like the place of speaking Bangla. It seems like a perfect place to sort of launch this foundation as well, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, uh, I think the other thing, um, so I live in India, I've been living there for about six years, but I actually prefer working in Bangladesh. And even though Bangladesh is a much poorer place than India and much smaller, the things we're able to do there are impossible in India. And I think part of it is because of this work ethic and sense of responsibility be, is it because it's more conservative or what's the what's no it's actually the kind of things i mean again the world is changing and it's changing very rapidly but at the moment the kind of things that we can show in bangladesh cannot that's actually more liberal than india well i meant yes i meant is india more conservative yeah more conservative and i think the tradition with philanthropy is very different more private or more institutional in what way there's not much philanthropy at all for the arts in india actually so it's um you know, there's various private initiatives. I mean, there's also, there's the Kochi Biennial, but they had serious funding and continue to have serious funding issues. You don't have a family like the Samdhanis doing something like this. The equivalent doesn't exist in India. So outside of the Samdhanis in Bangladesh, are there other individual? Yeah. There are. There are. So what's really interesting that a lot of people don't know about Bangladesh um, is that the world's largest classical music festival in the world is in Dhaka. It's completely free and it's funded by by a person like the Samdanis, if that makes sense. So it's culturally diverse and very rich. Absolutely. And people see the, you know, I guess giving to arts and culture is very much in the DNA. And it's 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 part of daily life, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. One of the things that really interested me when I was researching the the DACA Art Summit was Mm -hmm. that it provided an opportunity for 1,200 children over 26 schools they visited the 2014 one. It strikes me as being very inclusive. Yeah, definitely. And so no one needs a ticket. It's completely free. Anyone can walk in. So we had, I think, 138,000 visitors in four days. So that's, I think, about 3,000 people an hour. And that's local people. And we had 800 international arts professionals as well. Well, and you're providing opportunities for South Asian artists to produce on a larger scale. Absolutely. It's, absolutely. I, I, my automatic reference was Socrates Sculpture Park in New York. Uh, I had shown at Socrates, but it was one of those opportunities where as a young artist without the, the chance to sort of build something from the ground up, it's the mm-hmm. first opportunity you have to build these large scale works. Yeah, totally, totally. And also in places, a lot of these countries, like particularly Myanmar, there aren't galleries that are supporting this sort of thing, right? And there aren't really arts councils. So that's where... Well, if, if, if there isn't money for it, then they're not going to support it generally, right? If they can't sell it? 
Exactly, exactly. So we kind of take that position because, you know, we fly in the artists, we, we support all this because there is, we become that support network, if that makes sense. Well, and it seems like it's a, it's a mix of local with international. So yeah. like you're bringing in these international curators to see these local artists that probably would not otherwise be seen. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And the other thing we try to do is rather than a biennial model, I think it's more of like a, a pop-up museum in a way because we have many different curators with independent exhibitions with their own themes. So that way you're not just seeing, you know, if one curator doesn't like you, it doesn't mean that you won't show. If that that, makes that sense. never happens, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm trying to kind of, how do you say, diffuse the power dynamics <laughs> because it's like, you know, the same 10 artists that you see traveling everywhere. Well, and it's, that, it's the same with China. Yeah, exactly. The exact, exactly. So you get into these regional areas where you have a few knowledgeable curators that go into those regions and find the artists they want. And then everybody else sort of cherry picks off of that, that list to curate into their other shows and their biennials. Exactly. So I think that's very dangerous. I don't want to be that cherry picker. So that's why I, I like, you know, it's when you come to the summit, you're not seeing my view of South Asia. You're seeing many. I think we had 11 people on the curatorial team this time. So, so this brings me into yeah. New Museum Triennial. And it was uh, Sharice Carl. Did you help bring him in? Is that, am I saying this right? Sharice Carle. Sharice Carle. There you go. Thank you. And by uh, the way, I've told you before this started to correct me on all of my pronunciations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. No problem. No problem. What does advisor mean? Like I was not the curator. It was Lauren Cornell and Ryan Chakartin. And I just helped them have access to various, you know, young artists doing interesting things. And I helped Lauren find the funding to go to India to do studio visits. So it wasn't, you know, not just seeing it through my eyes. She could actually go and meet the artists and do these visits. And basically Shreyas's work, um, which was an existing work, um, fit perfectly within her uh, curatorial premise. So it worked out quite well that way. I don't want to be the end authority on everything going on in South Asia. I would rather be a, a, how do you say, a point where I can introduce someone to many authorities because it's... uh, No, it's absolutely true. I also think, though, that if you are the person that's on the ground running and you're seeing it day to day, you have a better sense of what's happening day to day and what's going on. Totally, totally, for sure. But again, no one's... No, there's no one authority. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's no one authority. But it was interesting because he was not the person that people would expect. So, you know, there's a lot of young artists with a lot of marketing behind them. And I think Shreyas is someone who's kind of quietly working. He's not someone that's like, you know, you know, promoting himself as the fresh, hot, young, new thing. So I was very happy with that selection, but I think it surprised some people. Something that's really great about the Dhaka Art Summit and these new commissions and things like that is that the works then travel to other exhibitions. And there's a lot of young Bangladeshi artists that are going to have their first institutional exhibitions coming up, which I'm thrilled about. And also, rather than ones in the West, there's a lot of inter-Asia dialogue happening that wasn't happening before. In terms of young artists in Bangladesh, I think one very interesting place to start looking is the Padshala South Asia Media Academy. So Freeze just did a full page write up on how is this, in quotes, photography school in Bangladesh producing such incredible work, which is worth a read. It's by Daniel Bauman, the director of the Kunstale Zurich. But in Patshala, there is an artist named Munim Wasif, and uh, he created this haunting video installation, but also there were some photographs, a film strip associated with it, looking at this border region between India and Bangladesh, where the people are cutting away at the mountain in order to kind of fuel uh, roads and development 
uh, within the country of Bangladesh. But basically, this landscape looks completely alien and barren, but these people also kind of have no status, if that makes sense. Wow. Um, it's a really haunting, haunting piece, monochrome, black and white. But you can almost taste the dust that's in the air from the, you know, basically when you're cutting away at mountains, you're also creating this whole dust cloud. And in the video, you can't really tell if it's a video or the photograph because the movement is so slow. And it's a three-channel video. And this work will travel to the Guangzhou Biennial and also to the Singapore Biennial. And then there is also Shumon Ahmed. He is also a photographer. And he was just, he just won the Prudential Eye Award for the best photographer in Asia. And he's based in Bangladesh. And he is most known for this series called Metal Graves, which are basically his documentation of the shipbreaking yards in Bangladesh, in Chittagong. So a lot of artists like Edward Butinsky have, have dealt with this subject, but the way that Shimon treats the film is very interesting. But so It seems like a lot of the artists are dealing with their, their surroundings. Like Absolutely. the ones you've mentioned have been talking about their social issues and the surroundings that they're dealing with. Is that pretty predominant in most of the work or is that, I mean, that's a broad stroke. Yeah, no, I think it is predominant in most of the work, which also, you know, there's others where maybe it doesn't look like it's dealing with the local landscape, but it actually is. Like, so an example I would give you is another Bangladeshi artist, Aisha Sultana. And Aisha Sultana, she's really interested in surfaces. So what she's most known for are these graphite drawings where she's basically drawing repetitively on pieces of paper. But the way that she applies them to um, – she used to use wood backings. Now she's using dye bond. But they create this sense of relief, but they almost look like the tin roofs on village houses. Yeah. And so she's creating these abstract landscapes, but they're very much uh, tied – to the surfaces that she encounters in everyday life in Dhaka. And she's currently in Stockholm uh, on a residency at Yaspis. So the age range of a lot of these artists who are in showing or, or producing for Dhaka, Art Summit and everything else, it it's a broad range, right? Oh, really broad. I mean, we've got some people born in the 90s and we have other, we also show artists who are no longer with us. So yeah, it's really, we try to have an intergenerational as well as, you know, intercultural dialogue going on here. And the other, I think, important thing to, to talk about is that anyone can have a relationship with South Asia. Like, I'm not really interested in only working with people who are ethnically tied to that place. So an example would be like Linda Benglis. Linda Benglis lived in India and still has a studio there on and off for 30 years because her life partner was Indian. And when you know that, you can see it in the work in yeah, terms yeah. of the different forms and textures. Christie's recently auctioned off this incredible set of sculptures that Calder made in India in the 50s. You know, we're, we're interested also in the work of the foundation of opening up South Asia to international artists as well. So what's that like for you working in a single region, focusing your efforts on the region in, in particular? You know, you need a, my, I guess my home for the last six years has been Mumbai. So how Six years I, is how long you've been there? Yeah, but I'm also 32. So as a percentage of my adult life. You're young. Yeah, but as a percentage <laughs> of my adult life, six years is a long time. I can understand the world around me by by looking at that region. However, with the summits and with our – so the, the Samdani Art Foundation is also opening a building, uh, an art center at the end of 2018. But with these things, I'm really trying to make the point that you can't look at regions within a, within a closed set of geographic constraints. Why? For many reasons. So right before I was talking to you, I was talking to an artist um, named Andrew Ananda Vugel, which sounds like a very interesting name. 
from his maternal side of his family, which is where the Ananda, the Indian side, comes from. I think it was his great-grandmother was kidnapped from a factory and sent to Guyana. So right if you're looking at the East Indies or the West Indies, that's part of this region. If you're looking at the Indian Ocean Belt, Mauritius, there's a huge South Asian diaspora there. You can't, you know... It encompasses more than just what's on the map, essentially. Like, it, it, it goes well beyond. It goes well beyond that. But also, what are these regions? I think there's a. I also, another email I just shot off before this Skype call, there's this incredible book called Another Asia by Rustam Barucha, who um, is an Indian uh, professor, amongst many other things. But it's um, talking about this friendship between Okakura and Rabindranath Tagore. But it's this, it's talking about what is Asia, for example. Japanese people definitely don't consider themselves Asian. They certainly don't consider Bangladeshis or Indian people Asian. Like, what, what is this, right? So it, even as, or like in 1930, Rabindranath Tagore had this quote about friendship between Japan and India and how perhaps one day there could be a continental mind of, of Asia, like much needed to be developed and fostered. That doesn't exist, right? It still doesn't exist. I have a friend in London. When I say Asian, she's hmm. Indian. Yeah. She automatically represents herself as Asian. And for people in the States, Asian is China, Japan. So there's this this diverge in like, what, what does that mean and what does it represent? Absolutely. What does it mean and what does it represent? But also, I'm interested in good art. I don't really care if it's South Asian or Western Absolutely. or African. Like, So I think that's what it kind of boils down to. Like, I don't think people are coming to the summit to see good South Asian art. I think they know that there's excellent art is happening to be produced there. It's not because they're typecasting a certain region, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely makes sense. Completely. I wanted to talk a bit about, you have your hands in a lot of pots, like Mm -hmm. you're you're all over the place. So in a good way, Uh, Henry Moore Institute fellow curator in residence at FRAC, F-R-A-C. FRAC, so that's French for Fond Régional de Art Contemporain. So that's like their kind of... I mean, it's, it's an incredible model, actually, uh, of each region in France has a collecting institution called a FRAC. It's free to the public. There are small art centers, but they collect contemporary art and international contemporary art. But since the 80s, they produce books, they produce exhibitions. It's really incredible. So any region, any small region of France, kids grow up with this kind of cutting edge contemporary art education. So what is your what is your role in that then? Well, that was last summer, but I was one of the, or I guess I was the second curatorial resident that they had, and I was studying the collection and kind of their institutional development. So what brought you there? Why did you decide that you wanted to do that? Um, Because my husband is French and eventually I will move to France. So I kind of wanted to see, get a view of what a French, working at a French institution was like. Totally makes sense. Yeah. And then also we, as I mentioned before, we're going to be opening an art center at the end of 2018. So a lot of my time is actually looking at other institutions that have been set up. And yeah, how do you do something differently? There is absolutely no need to open up a Western style art institution in Bangladesh. Like, right. Why would you go to Bangladesh to see the same kind of place that you can see in London or in France? People do not branch out and look at these other things. Generally, I think it's one of the, I was having a conversation, uh, with another artist the other day, and he is is from the UK, mm. and this this idea of staying in your if you're in London, you really have a hard time looking outside of London. If you're yeah. in New York, you have a hard time looking outside of New York, and the same with LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. So we don't take our artists or individuals in those cities for the most part don't take enough opportunity to go out and sort of expand their their research and their knowledge. Now, unfortunately, the opportunities in the States for funding to go do that are much more limited than they are in Europe. I know, I know. 
But I guess something to look at is there's an institution called the Asia Cultural Council. Yeah. Um, and they, I guess, have funds to try to foster relationships between the U.S. and, and, and Asia. Um, but it's interesting because actually I find – because the U.S. is so far from um, India and Bangladesh, I'm actually rarely here. And the other thing that's crazy is you do not see American art circulating in this part of the world precisely because of this lack of funding. So British Council is extremely active in India and Bangladesh. So you see British shows. Uh, Institute Francais, the French Cultural Council, very active. Goethe Institute, German Cultural Council, very active. So you see European art, you don't see American art. So how does that affect the artists that are actually making the work in, in that region when they're not exposed to the art in the States? Part of the reason why we show a lot of um, international art in the summit is because we know that these artists can't travel to go see things, so we need to bring it to them, if that makes sense. It totally and does. making a much more concerted effort on U.S. collaborations um, for the next summit. And then once our space is open in 2018, that won't have a regional remit at all, so that we can show art from anywhere. Because, I, like you said, it is doing a disservice to the artist's in South Asia if they don't have access to excellent practices from all over the world. What, what this, you, you're bringing up the, the, the building for 2018. How big yeah. is it? What are we talking about for scale? So this is going to be phase one. The site is 100 acres, but oh your phase one will not be 100 acres. Phase one will probably have about 7,000 square feet of exhibition space, but it'll also have 10 bedrooms. Again, this, this could all change. We're still in the architectural back and forth with the architect. But the idea is about 7,000 feet, square feet of exhibition space, 10 bedrooms where artists can live and work, and uh, it will expand continuously over time. So one of the central works for this space is a video by Dominique Gonzalez Forster. Uh, it's a life-size holographic projection of her performing as Fitzcarraldo. So it needs an 80-foot throw to show the work. So basically, we have to design spaces with particular artworks in mind. It's quite challenging. Lucky artist. Yeah, lucky artist. <laughs> we are going to use a Bangladeshi architect. His name is Kashif Chowdhury, and he's the first Bangladeshi architect to be in the central pavilion of the Venice Architecture Biennial, which opens later this month. And so we're really happy to, I guess, you know, we don't need a star, an international star to come validate what we're doing. We'd rather like develop a star by supporting local talent. And you have an inherent interest in sculpture. I would yeah. assume, looking yeah. at all of your, your history yeah. and the Henry Moore and everything else, like... Yeah. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Why or where did that where did that develop? You know, I think it was an, a subconscious interest before I moved to India. But then once I moved to India, I met this man who wanted to start a sculpture park in India. So he funded me to travel all over India, visiting sculptors all over the country, and then travel all over the world, visiting sculpture parks internationally to kind of figure out why, like a place like India with such a long history, think about tone, stone temple sculptures and things like that, why is there so little contemporary sculpture coming out of the country? Um, and did was, you figure out why? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's many reasons, but I think the problem is that, you know, there aren't, well, one, there are no sculpture parks in India. Two, galleries, like, how are you going to, production, right? It's a poor country. Who's it's gonna money. Pay, it's money. It's money. But it's also space. Who's going to store things? It's technical expertise. If there's no money supporting sculpture, then you don't have the technicians to make these things. So someone like Subodh Gupta, who's now represented by Hauser and Worth, 
most of those sculptures are made in Switzerland. They're not made in India. Right. Um, and I have a wonderful producer. She's French and her name is Eve Lamel. And she's been in India longer than me, I think almost eight years. And so she's been working on fabrication. So a lot of people hire her to figure out how to fabricate things. And she's giving up on fabricating in India because that sort of expertise, particularly for large scale sculpture, doesn't exist there. And in terms of stone, you would think that it would be an incredible opportunity for artists to, to use stone. But again, you transport it, it might break. You know, there's all of these other structural problems. And also, where are you going to put it? The climate, you've got monsoon, at least like in some places you have two monsoons a year. Most it's it's one, but, you know, three months of rain, you know, it's a bit uh, technically challenging. So anyway, as a result of kind of this structural view of what was, you know, hindering the development of sculpture in India, I convinced this man that we should be funding Indian artists to do residencies at sculpture parks all over the world and kind of see what these are, see what the possibilities are. Also, we supported a lot of residencies. And it was through this process that I met the Samdanis who were interested in what we were doing with India, but wanted to give it a wider scope across the region. So in the foundation, are you going to have a sculpture park at the new building? We are. But at the same time, I think you, again, what I think is really interesting, like anyone, it's not about the production of the artwork. It's how are you going to take care of it over its lifetime? I think the worst thing is leaving something outside before you understand what the security situation is, all of those sorts of things. So phase one won't have outdoor sculptures, but phase two will. How many conservators are there? Are there are there many conservators in, in the country? No, Not really, right? No, and those, uh, no. So it's definitely a skill set that needs to be developed. I actually have one more question, and it deals with... It deals with the DACA Art Summit, and it was something I saw that was interesting on there. One of the artists out of the DACA Summit actually is provided the opportunity to go to London on a residency. Mm-hmm. That seems to me like something that is it provides a lot of opportunity for that artist. Where do they go? Why did you select London as the place where the residency takes place? And can you explain that a little bit? The the partnership with Delfina Foundation was was figured out independently of me before I started running the whole foundation. While it's wonderful that I can't claim authorship of that decision, but I can explain why the decision. <laughs> so basically, there is a very rich history of South Asia exhibitions in the UK. And I think maybe it's because of the British colonial past, but these links are deep and they, they've existed for a long time. So to give you an idea, at the end of June, there's a big conference about South Asia exhibition histories in London, because basically you can't look at the exhibition histories of South Asia without looking at London. There's existing networks to help the artists once they get there. There's also a huge Bangladeshi population in London. So in terms of, um, you know, comfort and and safety, it's it's not too much of a, how do you say, culture shock. It's not a job, yeah. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it is a jump, but it's not so big of a jump. And it's also not so far. Like, while there are incredible residencies in the U.S., we also had a Bangladeshi artist who went to Skowhegan last year. That's you know, a culture shift. Yeah, that's a big culture that's shift. That's a huge culture shift. I think he really liked that culture shift. I, I would he, imagine he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so London makes sense for that regard. Also, the Samdanis are on the Tate South Asia Acquisitions Committee. So there's the Tate connection. There's a lot of connections that are great for the artists. And the Delfina Foundation is really great in providing these kind of networks. However, moving forward, I'm trying to figure out a residency is not always the best thing for an artist. Not every artist needs a residency. In what way? Um, well, if, if you've kind of got your studio practice figured out and you've got kids and you've got a family, leaving for three months might not be the most productive thing for you. Well, it's like me. I have a job and kids. I can't go anywhere. 
Exactly. I'm trying to figure out moving forward what's the best way to, to keep the residency component, but maybe why. I think it works. It works for younger artists yeah. who are in the beginning of their careers, but established yeah. artists, it doesn't actually. The, the opportunity may be fantastic to go do it, but the limitations on like the ability to go do it yeah. are higher. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and also the Delfina Foundation, the guy who runs it, Aaron Caesar, is really, really smart. And they have, they also have these family lunches every week where they invite critics and curators to come and spend time with the artists. So I think it's a, it's lots a great of exposure, lots of exposure. Exactly. Exactly. So that works out quite well. Thank you for taking the time to be on here. I know that you're spending time with family and everything while you're here. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And I'm looking forward to following all of these podcasts. Yeah. Thank you.